Welcome to Prosecco and Pros, episode 22. This week's Prosecco is deletory. This week's Pros is The Push by Ashley Audrey. Thank you for joining us for an episode of Prosecco and Pros. I'm Amy. And I'm Wendy. We're a deep dive virtual book club that's kind of like a quiz-free lit class you never knew you needed. So let's Pop a cork for this week's episode of Prosecco and Pros. For those who are listening in the car, please don't drink and drive. Save the bubbly for later. So Amy, you actually read this book pretty soon after it came out, and you said I had to read it. Yeah, I guess I was pretty heavily hinting, suggesting, and maybe pressuring you. Well, I'm so glad you did, because it was incredible. I told you, I like read it in one day. And Mm. you know how slow I read. (laughs) I just couldn't put it down. Well, when you said that, I knew I had to read it. But you haven't yet given me something to read that I didn't enjoy. And you, my friend, haven't given me a Prosecco that I didn't enjoy. Are you sure about that? We did have that one last season. Well, it may not have been my favorite, but trust me, I still enjoyed it. I always hunt the good stuff. Plus, it was free, cheap, and cold. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> I'll take that. Well, let's see if this Prosecco, this Delatory, is enjoyable. So this Delatory is a DOC, a brute, so pretty dry. Mm-hmm. Holy mother of grapes. Looking at this label, it says 12% alcohol. That's on the higher end for Prosecco. It just means we better sip this stuff slowly, right? I think so. Well, it's about $14 a bottle, and Vivino rates it at a 3.6. Mm, that's not an exceptional rating. No, pretty middle of the road. Let me see this label again. It says, floral aromatics of acacia and wisteria harmonize with white peach and apricot flavors, creating a wine of intriguing complexity. Mm. Huh. Sounds fancy. Interesting. Remember this one was quite lengthy with info. That's right. It had pairing notes on it. It says it pairs with spiced prosciutto and fresh mozzarella layered on toasted focaccia seasoned with olive oil. Also says best served chilled. Well, duh. I think that goes without saying. (laughs) But that's a pretty specific pairing. And it seemed like sound advice. So we followed it. As best we could. Right. We couldn't find spiced prosciutto. Should have really looked at Wegmans. I didn't even think about it. Oh, I didn't think about that either. Yeah. But Wendy's put together some regular prosciutto and fresh mozzarella. No focaccia either. But I did muster up some Italian bread and seasoned dipping olive oil. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty close. Now, there was tons, I mean, tons of Mm -hmm. pelage with a heavy mousse on the pour. The pelage is pretty continuous after the mousse settles, too. Yes, lots of bubbles on the pour and in the glass. It's a bubbly bubbly. I love that. A bubbly bubbly. And a darker straw yellow color. I would call it a golden yellow. Oh. Now the smell is like spring has sprung. Like a bouquet in your nose. I don't know if I'm having flashbacks to our last one, but I'm getting a yeasty fruit smell. You liked that yeasty Zolt bar last episode, didn't you? I did. (laughs) It must have left a doughy impression. (laughs) Well, I like bread, so. (laughs) Or maybe you're just, you know, more aware of it now. Like my sniffer is getting more refined. Windy, the nose knows. Well, something like that. You give me too much credit. (laughs) I mean, really. If you do something with frequency, you get better at it. It's, you know, it's a given. True. I am a frequent Prosecco drinker. We both have become habitual. Such a stressful job requirement. I know. Now, what fruits are you getting? Love this job. 
Um, actually, I can't really pinpoint it, but I agree with you. There is floral on the nose, but it's a soft floral. Quick taste before I move on. Hmm. Mmm. Mm. The flavor's sweet. I mean, it's quite tart. Hmm. It's a bit like grapefruit on the roof of your mouth. Sort of gives you a, you know, a pucker factor. You love sweet tarts, mm. so you should love this delatory. Hey, didn't you eat like a whole big box on the flight to Arizona? <laughs> so you did notice. Um, yeah. I mean, I also, and I didn't, I never told you, but I got a huge blister on my tongue. It was just so oh, painful. <laughs> you know, sweet tarts are truly my addiction. Well, peanut butter M&Ms are mine, but they never give me a blister. Mm. Maybe you just don't eat enough of them. Oh, I, I do. But I agree with you on the initial taste. You mean you get sweet tarts? No. I get a citrusy <laughs> apricot. And yes, there's definitely a pucker factor. I'll be curious to see how this one opens up. Don't have my signature green apple yet, though. Yeah, I don't have that either yet. Author bio? Sure. So Ashley Audrain is a Canadian author, and The Push, published in January of this year, so 2021, is her debut novel. I hadn't realized it was actually that recent. I just saw that it blew up everywhere on social media. Everywhere. Mm -hmm. I mean, I actually came across this novel on the podcast Sarah's Bookshelves Live. You've gotten a couple of good recommendations from her show. She's got some good stuff. But Sarah interviewed Ashley in February, and the conversation just like, it just really grabbed my attention immediately. I think it was when someone, can't remember if it was her or Ashley, said something about the darker side of motherhood. Ooh, that would pique my interest. Piqued mine. And let me back to, you know, when I was pregnant in the early months after my son was born. I remember I was so, so stressed out. I was 20 years old, had no business having a baby, scared, living in Germany, no family. I mean, the fear was real. Plus, Josh was so young in his army career. I can't even imagine. I think just being a new mom would be scary. It was. Not to mention being in a foreign country on top of that. I mean, we've both done the foreign country thing. Plus, I mean, we also both know the Army can feel like a scary career choice at times. Yeah, all of that. It was just so terrifying. Mm. I really didn't know what Army life was about either. Do we know yet? No, no. <laughs> but you know, I wasn't raised in that world. Yeah, exactly. I had this beautiful baby boy, though but he wouldn't stop crying. Eey. I mean, months upon months of crying shrills. Seriously? Mm -hmm. The medic told us we just needed a night out. I mean, no one would believe me that this kid wouldn't stop crying. It was literally constant. So I'm just, I mean, you know, I don't have children, but a night out, what would that do? I mean, do you just leave the baby to cry with somebody else or does the crying magically stop when you leave? You've got to explain this rationale to a non-parent, please. Exactly. Letting someone else do my job, right? Mm. Just not going to happen. So when we moved back to the U.S. and finally found someone who would, like, take me seriously, like a pediatrician and not a 25-year-old combat-trained medic, you know, no no offense. Well, a medic, I mean, I was I a medic. I know you were. I was not exactly trained in pediatrics. Mm -mm. We were trained to deliver a child, but that right. was the extent of it. Right. But, you know, the German post was closing down, oh, so we yeah, kind of yeah. got who we got. But once we were back in the States, we found out he was having tummy troubles. Oh, colic? Mm-hmm. He uh, got it really oof. bad. 
Now, I don't want to get too far off track, but I also had a fear from my previous job. You know, I worked at the CDC. Remember the CDC? I'm familiar. I worked at one as well. Child yeah. Development Centers. Yep. 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 Um, I worked in one of their toddler rooms when we first got to Germany, and there was this two-year-old that was so bad. Oh, I just hate saying that word, but he was bad. Kind of like Violet bad. Violet being one of our characters. Yes, but my thoughts kept coming back to him. And in a way that Ashley was describing Violet's behavior, it was, you know, really at this point that I just knew I had to read this book. I bet. And now being a new grandmother, Exciting. I wanted to revisit that time, you know, should the conversation ever come up where, you know, I might be asked for advice. I see. Though, I do remember you telling me that you will never give advice unless asked. Oh, exactly. I mean, I'm not going to be a Helen, um, you know, as the readers will see in the book. No, I can't see that. Though, she's not as bad as some I've heard. No, I agree. She's not. But sometimes, no, oftentimes, unsolicited advice to a stressed out mother or father is anything but helpful. I think that can go over <laughs> nearly any unsolicited advice, right? Right. Well, anyway... Enough of that. That was kind of a short story tangent that went long, but that's Happens. how I came, you know, about reading this book. So, a few fun facts about Miss Audrey. Before she wrote this New York Times, Sunday Times, and Globe and Mail bestseller, she was the publicity director of Penguin Books Canada. You know, I had read she got a record breaking deal for this debut, debut novel. Right, she did. And there's also a TV series in the works. What? I know. Oh, I would watch that. I would watch that. You know, I'm not much of a TV watcher, but Same. I will definitely be checking oh, it yeah. out. We'll be there with our Prosecco. That's right. <laughs> now, she has an idea for her second novel, which I, I see your eyes going, but before you ask, will not be a sequel. She said that it'll be, though, for the same audience as The Push. Uh, bummer. Well, we can still watch the TV series with our Prosecco and popcorn. That's right. Um, I would just be really interested in Violet's story, though. Me too, or even Fox's. Ooh, yeah, mm -hmm. because we don't know his side, yeah. Right. But I can only imagine what a heavy story that would be to come back to. Good point. But sequel or not, we'll definitely be picking up any book by Ashley Audrain in the future. Agreed. Not only was the story riveting, I loved her writing voice. Oh, me too. It just like really sucked you in. Oh, right away. Yeah. So let's quickly introduce our four main characters we will be focusing on for our discussion. And we will try, operative word try, not to make it confusing. We have four generations of women. Edda, the founding mother of our story, if you will. Mm -hmm. Cecilia, Edda's daughter. Blythe, Cecilia's daughter. And Violet, Blythe's daughter. So we have Edda, Cecilia, Blythe, Violet. Good, good. I'm glad you restated that because yeah. it, it is hard to follow. It is. Not when to... you're reading the book. No, 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 no. But yeah. Here. I did draw a map, though, in my book. I know you saw <laughs> of it. Of course you did. <laughs> <laughs> Very brief. But hopefully it will all make some sense in the summary. Hopefully. Now, warning, there will be spoilers. There really isn't a way around it. No, but there's yeah. always spoilers on our podcast. But honestly, yeah, this book is so good. You should read it anyways. Now, the story is told primarily from Blythe's point of view in the present via a manuscript she's writing. But we have flashbacks to her childhood, as well as flashbacks to Cecilia's childhood. So we thought we might just retell those three stories separately, but they are, like, just understand they are woven together throughout the book. Yeah, I think that's probably the best way to do this. So let's just see how this goes. <laughs> let's see. <laughs> You're up first. Okay. <laughs> so... I'll go ahead and just get started with Etta. Okay. Okay. 
Edda was Blythe's grandmother, who was born the very same day World War II began. I thought that that was really interesting. Yeah, definitely a detail there. Little war. Mm. Little war. Little trauma, little mm-hmm. disruption. Mm-hmm. Okay. But she fell in love with a future doctor, Lewis, a selfless man, who gave up his dream of being a doctor to work on Edda's father's farm. He tragically dies in a tractor accident. Oh, that's horrific. Then, four months later, Etta gives birth to their daughter, Cecilia. Etta's mother cares for Cecilia until Etta realizes that the prescribed sedatives and days in bed will not allow her to move forward in her life. She eventually meets Henry, marries, and is said to be struggling with her nerves. She's distant, emotionally absent, and even physically abusive. Though there are moments where Cecilia remembers Etta trying to be a good mother. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't really... No, I was to use that term, but at age 32, Etta hangs herself from a tree in the front yard. Cecilia is just 15 years old. Oh, I know. Emotional. I mean, walking out of your house. I know. I, I just. Anyway, okay. Fast yes. forward. Cecilia leaves town after high school graduation and is soon coupled up with Seb, but fooling around with his friend, mm. of course. She learns she is pregnant with Blythe and tells Seb she wants an abortion. He tells Cecilia she can move back home to her stepfather, Henry, and ask him for the money for the abortion. Unwilling to move back home, Cecilia chooses to keep the pregnancy and gives birth to Blythe. Cecilia does not feel she is meant for motherhood. And after Blythe's birth, she refuses to feed Blythe and instead goes outside to smoke a cigarette and tells Seb they could just leave. Just them. No baby. Right. She didn't want a baby to begin with, and she doesn't want a Mm -mm. baby now. Cecilia had other plans for her life. But Blythe is an easy baby, rarely cries, and Seb says to Cecilia almost every day, aren't we lucky? I just thought that was so just oddly placed, but it makes sense as the story goes along. Oh, it makes complete sense, yes. Because I had to come back to that a couple of times. Right. But now Blythe seems to have only a few memories from her childhood. She remembers her mother being distant and emotionally unavailable. Mm Mm-hmm. She recalls Cecilia trying to do a couple motherly things. And there's one in particular that I remember was when um, she attended a Mother's Day tea party when Blythe was in the third grade, I think, right? Yep. Yep. But Blythe's mother-daughter, you know, moments came primarily from Mrs. Ellington, Mm -hmm. a neighborhood lady whose sons are friends with Blythe. When Blythe is 11, Cecilia leaves and begins a relationship with another man. Shocking. Mm Mm-hmm. Blythe only sees Cecilia twice more in her life. Ugh. Blythe meets Fox in college. They fall in love and get married. Blythe is a bit ambivalent about motherhood and concerned she will simply repeat the patterns of her mother and grandmother, Cecilia and Etta. Fox is very reassuring, tells her she is different, and she gets pregnant. Initially excited, once in labor, Blythe tells Fox, she does not want the baby. <laughs> Yikes. I kept thinking, poor thing. But I it was know. a little too late to make that decision, just right? Just a tad, just a tad. <laughs> but, you know, it was really just a scary moment for her, as it is for anyone. Getting I, can, I can't even imagine. I was terrified. But after Violet, you know, was born, Blythe struggles with the baby who cries constantly. And mm-hmm. I know this feeling. But she didn't nurse well. And Blythe thinks the baby hates her. She did. Mm-hmm. But Fox thinks Blythe's anxiety is affecting Violet. I suppose that could happen. Oh, absolutely. Fox and Violet quickly develop a connection. He earns her first smile, among other first moments, 
which Blythe is jealous of. Blythe tries to connect to other mothers. You know, she's trying to learn if they are struggling as she is with the difficulties of motherhood. But she can tell her feelings are not the same, and she just feels more and more isolated. Well, at this point, Fox and Blythe's marriage really starts to suffer. I mean, just to add to that, there are also, you know, lots of little incidences of behavior issues with Violet. Remember when Violet bit Blythe? Uh, Yes. Oh, my son bit me one time. It is the worst pain ever. He just clamped on. I don't think I've ever been bit in my life. Oh, it hurts so bad. But then she was called out at school by the teachers for intentional violent behavior. Right. Mm -hmm. And then later she told Blythe she was going to harm a fellow student. The worst one was the day on the playground. Right. Blythe believes she witnessed Violet trip a child, causing him to fall on his head, which led to his death. Yeah. Well, the family moves, you know, fresh start, and Blythe wants a new chance at motherhood. Sam is born, and the loving connection she never had with Violet comes easily with Sam. Mm -hmm. Violet is initially warm and accepting of Sam, but Blythe starts to worry Violet is a danger to Sam. So one day, Blythe, Violet, and baby Sam are out for a stroll. A bit of confusion erupts as they wait for the light to change, and Sam's stroller rolls into the intersection. He is killed immediately. (sighs) Blythe believes Violet pushed that stroller. She does. Mm -hmm. Consumed by her grief, Fox and Blythe's marriage crumbles, and Blythe learns he's having an affair, which she finds herself nearly numb to, still grieving her son. Oh, I couldn't believe it. Yeah, it was like almost too much pain. Her body was like, I'm not going to deal with that. So they separate, and Blythe uses a disguise and a fake name, actually her mother Cecilia's middle name, Anne, to befriend Fox's girlfriend, Gemma, at a mother's group. Blythe pretends Sam is still alive as her friendship grows with Gemma. She learns Gemma and Fox have a son together. Mm. Mm. Blythe's deception with Gemma is found out by Fox, and Gemma cuts off contact, but not before Blythe tells her of her suspicions that Violet may be a danger to their son, Jet. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting, you know, she did want to keep her son alive, not to like get out of our summary, but I feel like the family kind of didn't let her experience her grief. Mm. You know, she's sort of stuck. Right. Blythe and Violet's relationship continues to deteriorate until Violet no longer spends time with her mother and Fox cuts off visitation. Blythe resorts to watching her daughter and the family in their house from her car. A year and a half later, Blythe is in therapy, still estranged from her daughter. Gemma calls. I mean, she's hysterical, telling her something has happened to Jet. That's where the story ends. I know, it just ends right there. It's just a very powerful, powerful story. I mean, it, it like leaves you literally breathless. I mean, it left me that way. I mean, it read like a very slow, slow obsession. It, yeah. Kind of gave me a suffocating feeling. Yeah. I liked how she used the manuscript she'd written for Fox as a method of telling the story. You know, with her in the car at the beginning and again at the end, it really made for good bookends. Now, before we get into our power theme, I think we need to talk about our narrator, Blythe. Our unreliable narrator? Yes. Unreliable is an understatement, Wendy. Mm. So let's get out our trusty Bedfords. Love me my Bedford. Mm-hmm, me too. An unreliable, also known as a fallible narrator, is one who intentionally or 
unintentionally fails to provide an accurate report of events or situations, and whose credibility is therefore compromised. And they are most often used in narratives with a first-person point of view, which our novel is. Mm -hmm. Now, don't fall asleep, Amy. Top off your glass. There are lists and lists of types of unreliable narrators. I see this. Yes. No, I'm not going to tell you the whole list. I'm telling you that they come down to these four basic types, okay? Okay. Just four. You just got to remember four, okay? Okay. Our first one is the Picaro, who uses exaggeration and bragging, Mm -hmm. right? The second is a madman or woman who is mentally detached from reality. They're either only experiencing mental defense mechanisms, you know, such as post-traumatic disassociation and self-alienation, or even severe mental illness, okay? The naive, whose perception is immature or limited through their point of view. And finally, the liar, who is of sound cognition, okay? They're supposed to have it all. Right. But deliberately misrepresents themselves. It could be to cover up something or to make themselves look better. So I personally think Blythe falls into a couple of these types. I'm going to say the mad woman and definitely the liar. So we're going to say she's of sound cognition. Yeah, I think so. I completely agree. And I agree with, you know, the part about the liar. She lies to Fox. Remember when he comes home and Blythe has been writing and Violet has been crying in her crib? Mm, Yes. Fox asks if it's happened before and she says, nope. I mean, she also lies about her family to Fox. Mm -hmm. I mean, she lies to the mothers about motherhood being rewarding. Mm -hmm. She lies to Violet when she finds the book on infidelity. And the real big lie is the disguise as Anne when she's trying and eventually befriends Gemma. Remember after her cover is blown and she and Gemma finally meet up? Gemma asks her what happened with Sam. Right, right, right. And Bly thinks to herself, I told so many lies, I couldn't tell another one. Even she is admitting she's a liar. Right. So as a reader, you have to question what else is she lying about, right? Um, Yeah, exactly. It could all be a lie. But now you mentioned the madman, madwoman type. So how do you see that? Well, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that Blythe was suffering from postpartum depression. Okay. Okay. She had all the signs, obviously sadness, Mm -hmm. she had anxiety, she slept a lot, lots of mood changes, crying spells, you know, a total disconnection. I mean, the list totally goes on, right? A lot of emotional and physical challenges, for sure. Right. And she initially did try to join the mother's groups, Mm -hmm. but they really only made her feel more and more isolated. And then she... I mean, she just started to isolate herself. But I also think it went deeper than just postpartum depression. Okay. It seems like there was a long line of serious mental health issues on that side of the family, wouldn't you think? Yeah, there's something. Right. I'm not a doctor and I, you know, and I can't speak on this for sure, but I swear there's some bipolar in that family. I mean, I'm not a doctor either, but there's something else there. I mean, I agree. But I did think of Blythe as being mentally outside her family and definitely Violet, right? Like she was kind of disconnected from her for sure. And it really got just more pronounced after Sam's death. Oh, it really did. I mean, she pretended her son was alive. I say that's a bit detached from reality. A bit. It's not, you know, something a rational person would do. No, I, I, I don't think so. And, and she, you know, she starts to question herself. What did she see on the playground? Did Violet trip that boy? 
when she went back to the intersection where Sam died, did Violet push him? Can she trust what she believes, what she believes she saw? Yeah, I can, yeah, I can totally see the mad woman type. And that makes our Blythe a very unreliable narrator. I would have to agree. Now, I would love to just take a second and ask our listeners. Our reliable listeners? Yes, Amy. Ask our reliable listeners <laughs> to rate and review us if you're listening on Apple Podcast. It just helps us reach more lit lovers like yourself. Also, if you would, we'd love for you to please share this podcast with just one person. It also helps grow our reach. So thanks in advance. Yes. Grazie. Now, Wendy, how are you liking this Prosecco so far? I like it. Um... You know, it's got a nice pear as it opens up, and I'm still getting a citrusy apricot. It's tasty. You? Yeah, I'm liking it so far. Um, I'm now definitely tasting some green apple. You know, I always find it if it's there, but this time it's more of the, how do I say this, maybe essence of it? Hmm. Like when I exhale from my nose, does that make sense to you? Well, it does, yeah. I do get green apple on the finish. But it's also, it's kind of um, sticky in the mouth and yeast. I mean, I taste the yeast. You've got yeast on the brain. I can't help it if I taste it. That was all your job, but now all you are about is some green apple. Hey, I taste what I taste. It's what makes me reliable. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Okay. But, you know, this really is a good one. Now let's talk about our power theme. Ooh, this novel Mm. was all about some power, right? Right. You know, I word nerded it, and some form of the word power actually only appeared eight times. That was so odd when you told me that. I mean, I felt like it was on every single page. Oh, it was on every single page. But we both know you can show even better than tell in writing. Okay, English teacher. Look at the belt. (laughs) That's right. That's right. You know, just to tie in our unreliable narrator, isn't there something powerful about being an unreliable narrator? Oh? Yes. As a reader, you're sort of bound to follow them. Hmm. Like, you're kind of at their mercy to find out where the truth really lies. I had not thought of that, but there's some power in that. I'd say... A lot of power. Yeah, I mean, we were hooked. Right. So unlike the Velt last episode, mm-hmm. you know, where the children had the power and kept the power for the entire story. Well, they had it. Power is transferred back and forth between parent and child throughout this novel, The Push. Exactly. But who ends up with the power at the end? Well, let's find out. We'll start with the seven instances in the novel where the word power was deliberately used and related to the theme. And then we'll add in some other moments that stuck out to us. Mm -hmm. So our first instance occurs in a flashback. Right. Blythe and Thomas Ellington, her best friend and neighbor, had written a story together about a gnome who grants a family one special superpower. Cecilia, again Blythe's mother, Mm -hmm. finds the book and sees the picture Blythe drew. Right. This picture of a family, of a daughter with Crayola peach skin as part of a black family. Mm -hmm. Blythe had made herself a part of the Ellington family. And Cecilia, I mean, no pun intended, throws the book at Blythe and she hits her. This is an interesting play on our power theme. Blythe exerts power in that she takes herself out of her family and places herself very deliberately in another. 
But Cecilia, her mother, literally throws that power right back in her face. And Blythe takes the book back to Thomas, even though it's her favorite they've made together, effectively giving the power back to her mother. But Blythe also had the power. She found a way that got, you know, under her mother's skin. Ooh, she did. Very good point. Now, our next instance is when Violet is a baby. Blythe talks about the rush of power she feels when she makes decisions other mothers wouldn't make, or she thinks other mothers wouldn't make because they weren't supposed to. Yes, and this was just so cruel. Oof. Yeah. Now, remember Violet's bottle had fallen out of the diaper bag Mm -hmm. and rolled across that dirty floor? Yeah. Blythe made the decision not to wipe off the nipple. And this isn't the only time she's made decisions like this. She's left wet diapers on too long, skipped baths. I mean, this is more than a power play. It's clearly abuse. Which kind of is a power play. I mean, I was so disappointed. Yeah. Our next use of power is in a flashback when Cecilia was a child. Etta had made a dress for Cecilia for the sixth grade school dance. And Cecilia absolutely loved the dress. she did. She did. But it was too small and she could not get the dress on. Etta orders her to put the dress on to make it fit. At first, Cecilia wasn't acting defiantly. I didn't Mm -mm. think. I didn't think so at all. Mm -mm. She's just trying to figure out, you know, a way to get this dress on and what to do. I mean, the dress simply didn't fit. No. But as Etta's rage grows, Cecilia realizes she has a kind of power over Etta. She can make her angry and make her lose control. And so then she does refuse to go make the dress fit. Cecilia also lets us know, watching Etta scream as the rage pumped through her, sort of like a drug, that she, Cecilia, would come to know that feeling many years later. Yeah, it was a bit of a moment, wasn't Mm -hmm. it? Well, Etta sloppily adds panels to the dress. (laughs) Oh, my mom would just have a (laughs) A field day with that. And uh, Cecilia wears it. She does wear it to the end of the year dance. And to dinner, right? Oh, that's right. Yeah. Even though it looked horrific. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, my God. I could totally... I could see it. Yeah. I oh, mean, yeah. I still... I so, could yeah. totally envision it. And Cecilia wore the dress to exert power over her mm-hmm. mother. In fact, her action has so much power. Like, I'll show you. Henry and Etta don't even mention it. Not a word. The child has taken the power from the parent. Mm-hmm. Okay, this next one is when Violet is a toddler. Blythe has gone back to writing, and she ignores Violet's cries when she wakes up from a nap to continue writing. Well, she makes up for this parenting lapse by giving Violet, you know, a cookie on the walk or an extra long bath time. Oh, of course. I mean, that makes it okay. But Blythe realizes her days are numbered, and soon... She will lose this power she has over Violet. Because very soon, Violet will be able to talk. She will. Yep. She'll be able to tell Fox about her day. Mm-hmm. The power is on a blade's edge. It is. And I see how you snuck that mm-hmm. in. Nice. Now, the next power shift also takes place between Blythe and Violet. Right. It's after Fox has discovered Blythe, disguised as Anne, had befriended Gemma. Blythe asks Violet how the baby is. Mm-hmm. They've literally never discussed Jet yet, as it was a secret Violet was keeping. And Violet, you know, she recognizes this shift in power. Blythe can see it. And she no longer is the keeper of the secret. So power, or at least some of it, is now in Blythe's hands. 
Blythe had to do something. I mean, Fox took the power she had as Anne with her disguise and changed her back into Blythe, someone who, you know, was powerless. Right. I mean, he really did. Now, we have another flashback with Cecilia when she first leaves home. Okay. She knows she has a beauty that attracts attention. And that makes her feel powerful and vulnerable at the same time. I kind of felt like Cecilia felt like prey Mm -hmm. when she and Seb went out. But she also likes being wanted by men in that way. Did you kind of get that feeling? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It does lead her to take up with Seb's friend. Well, we know from Blythe's story that Cecilia continues to take evenings and even long weekends into the city. I mean, she's probably chasing after that power high. Oh, very likely. Now, the last use of the word power is when Blythe goes as a chaperone on Mm -hmm. Violet's field trip. Yeah. She finds this bracelet she'd seen Violet stringing the night before, and she thought it might be for one of her friends. Right. I did wonder why Violet didn't really protest. I thought that was interesting Mm -hmm. when I went back to look. But anyways, this bracelet was, you know, just left by the girls. As if it was unwanted? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And that tiny act shows Blythe that Violet is powerless among her friends. Right. She is no longer the girl who intimidates on the playground. You could say the bracelet is a symbol of a loss of power, maybe. Oh, you could. And, you know, she knows Violet did not want her to see that. You can't let someone see you powerless if you are to maintain power over them, right? You can't. And, you know, Violet does have the power over Blythe. I mean, she pretty much has since birth, right? True. Which is very much like Bradbury's The Velt. Mm, Yes. Blythe, though, only had moments of power throughout as child and as parent. Yeah, her power, you know, has always been fleeting. She couldn't hang on to it. But she did have the reader the whole time. As our unreliable narrator, she sure did. Mm -hmm. Have another thought, and that is this power to simply become a mom. Whether, you know, I even want to or should. Yeah, I mean, that pretty much umbrellas the whole novel. It really does. Now, I think Etta maybe wanted to be a mother, but when her husband died before the birth, I think Cecilia may have been a reminder of all she had lost. Even back to being, you know, a doctor's wife. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I never got the sense that Etta didn't want to be a mother. So I think that could be true. But Cecilia, I mean, she got pregnant by accident. And we know she didn't want a baby. This took her power away. Which she then worked to get back by having power over Blythe. And, and you know, Blythe kind of only has a baby for Fox. Well, Violet, yes. But then she did want Sam. Well, she thought she could write what she had done wrong with Violet. You know, I'm not trying to be contradictory, but I I just had a thought. Because I do get your power to be a mother, but for these women, it actually rendered them powerless. I mean, it just goes to show you that not everyone's superpower is to be a mom. Mm, True. I mean, the desire, the physical means, mental, and even emotional health. Again, such a powerful story. So different from what I've read before. But I see the time and we need to move on. We do. So you already mentioned the bracelet as a symbol. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the blade. And I mentioned that too, kind of slyly. You did kind of sneak that in. 
So they have the razor blades, Blythe feels when she tries to nurse, and the blades Fox uses in his work as an architect. No real surprises. A blade is often a weapon Mm. and symbolizes pain. It symbolizes betrayal, revenge, sacrifice, maybe. (laughs) Yeah. I had read in my digging that um, women, this was just kind of interesting, that women giving birth would put one under the bed to ease the pain. Hmm. I've never heard of that. Sounds kind of superstitious and sort of odd, but Blythe wanted to feel the pain, right? Oh, I think she did. I mean, that chapter where she's giving birth to Violet is very intense. It really was an intense moment. Now, in my digging, I found this interesting in Blade symbolism. Blades symbolize the nature of the mind. Really? Okay, that's interesting. So the mind can speak of clarity and good actions. The mind is logical, it's caring, it's rational. Mm-hmm. The goodness of our heart can be lived out because of our mind. Okay, but there's obviously another side because Blythe struggles to be logical, caring, or rational. Of course. But the flip side is that the mind can stab us in the back. In a sense, torment us with negative thoughts. Ooh. I mean, Blythe is constantly tormenting herself, questioning her ability to be a mother, take care of Violet, take care of Sam, with what she thinks she saw in the playground with Violet and the boy, mm-hmm. at the intersection. Right. And honestly, that's kind of just the surface of it, right? And remember, beyond the mental part of it, she actually took a blade at one point and she cut herself. She did. There's the physical part. Of right. It. She wanted to inflict pain on herself. Like, you know, it was a revenge against herself, maybe. That's right. And then when we have that one blade, it ends up in Jet's little hands. Mm. It's a way for Violet to inflict physical pain on someone and revenge on Blythe. You know, I thought it telling that Blythe kept the longest blade after Fox left. Mm. The blade that could possibly cause the most harm. And it may very well have. I mean, we don't know what happened to Jet. We don't. We can only assume. Mm -hmm. The blade is definitely a power symbol. There was one more power symbol, and it kind of goes back to our last episode of the Velt again. Right. Um, We have the stuffed lion from the zoo trip. Right. And the fact that it was the mother lion. Oh, yes. Small, but important detail because Violet throws that mother lion out the window, Mm -hmm. clearly asserting her power. Uh, you know, it kind of showed she was in charge of the situation. As if her power had been questioned, but just, <laughs> just in, in case. case. Oh, <laughs> jinx. <laughs> you owe me a Prosecco. Yeah. I found it very telling, you know, Violet, a child, could just, you know, just discard something new and special. I know. It was like a foreshadowing of Sam's death and how easily a life, you know, could be discarded when hate is a major force. Right. You know, Violet does add, too, you know, after she's thrown the lion, that she hates her mom. Mm. And I felt for Blythe in that moment. It was really emotional. I mean, no one wants to be told they're hated. I can only imagine the pain when it's from your own child. (laughs) Wendy, most kids at some point tell their mothers they hate them. Yes. But the feel here, I agree, in this novel, this instance, you know, it just wasn't normal. I Yeah, it wasn't. It was totally... Extremely calculated. Right. Yeah, it was meant to inflict as much pain as possible. All right, I know you've been itching to get to the epigraph. Oh, now do you mind if I go ahead and read it? I would love to read it. It, No, of course. I think you need to. It's, yeah. Okay, so this is the epigraph from the beginning of the book. 
It's often said that the first sound we hear in the womb is our mother's heartbeat. Actually, the first sound to vibrate our newly developed hearing apparatus is the pulse of our mother's blood through her veins and arteries. We vibrate to that primordial rhythm even though we have ears to hear. Before we were conceived, we existed, in part, as an egg in our mother's ovary. All the eggs a woman will ever carry form in her ovaries while she is a four-month-old fetus in the womb of her mother. This means our cellular life as an egg begins in the womb of our grandmother. Each of us spent five months in our grandmother's womb, and she, in turn, formed within the womb of her grandmother. We vibrate to the rhythms of our mother's blood before she herself is born. And this was written by Lane Redman, uh, and it was from When the Drummers Were Women. Oh, you know, I hate to be a broken record, but that's a pretty powerful way to start a novel. Oh, the essence of that epigraph just sets the stage and the tone for the entire novel. It does make you think about the thread that runs through these women. Edda, Cecilia, Blythe, Violet. Was there something there that eventually shaped how they came to mother? I mean, we don't, we don't know Edda's mother, so we don't know that story. So that kind of has me thinking. This epigraph alludes to the fact that this thread is evident in women, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, it does. In the daughters, the granddaughters, the great-granddaughters. So what does this mean for sons? I mean, do you think it's interesting that the son, Sam, didn't live? And then possibly even Jet? I think that is interesting. It's, I mean, that's almost over my head. And, you know, you have me thinking too, like, I didn't, I don't have any kids, right? Mm -hmm. So what happens then? Did I just sever the thread? So does a son sever the thread? I mean, he's not passing on eggs. No, he's not passing on eggs. And in that aspect, you're kind of saying we are done. Our eggs end with us. You have no daughter. I have no children. Period. We're done. Yeah, I guess I am kind of saying that. (laughs) Wow. <laughs> I know. It's uh, it's kind of funny. Do you're, I look like a ghost? <laughs> you just look like uh, um, you're like, man, there'll not be another Amy. Wow. <laughs> it's kind of powerful stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. Got any other thoughts? I mean, that knocked me for a loop. You are speechless. I know you were just ready to mold a little Amy. Mm-hmm. This is the first, though? <laughs> you know... I think it is. I think so, too. I mean, yes, it is. So is is that your final thought? No, I almost forgot. And now that I'm kind of back. <laughs> That's good. I just want to leave with this. And it's it's a thought I had last night. And you and I haven't talked about it yet. Okay. But I think Audrain named Violet, our character Violet, mm-hmm. and left out the N for Violent. You take the N out of violent, and you have violet. Oh, wow. Well, um, you know, as I think as I think of the book, that's that's something to consider. That I'm is interesting. That good. <laughs> okay. It was like a 2 a.m. thought. <laughs> Those are 2 a.m. thoughts. But how about a right now thought? Okay. What about a Prosecco? 
Got some pairing thoughts. Do you have some overall thoughts? Oh, it paired so well with our prosciutto and mozzarella. Oh, we didn't even have spice. No. I think it would pair well as an aperitif, you know, with a nice cheese platter, some brie, a soft creamy cheese, maybe. Yeah, I agree. Like a camembert or a goat cheese on pear, mm. Mm, or a soft, creamy blue cheese with some fig jam. Ooh, I love fig jam. That sounds I know, so, so good. good. Now, Vivino had it at a 3.6. What do we think? Well, I I mean, I really like it. I think it's really good. It's easy to drink. I'm, I'm going to say it's a 3.9. Yeah, I'd also give it a 3.9. I would definitely drink this again. Plus, I love, love the pretty blue label. I know. It's kind of like a stained uh, mosaic glass. I can't wait for our listeners to see it on our Instagram. I know. It's so pretty. And it's potent at 12%. (laughs) It is potent. (laughs) But a powerful book calls for a powerful Prosecco. A perfect pairing. Indeed. All right, friends. Join us in two weeks for our discussion of the short story, Popular Girls, by Karen Shepard, which we will pair with Bellissima. And I'm going to go ahead, Wendy, and put a link for that short story in our show notes. Okay. Okay. Well, that's That's it. it. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks again for joining us for an episode of Prosecco and Prose. To view the complete show notes for today's episode, visit www.proseccoandprose.com. Please follow or subscribe. It's free wherever you listen, and you'll be the first to know when new episodes drop. You can even show your support by rating and leaving us a review, which helps other lit lovers discover our show. Feel free to connect with us on our website or any of our social media. Or you can find us on Clubhouse. I'm Wendy. And I'm Amy. Signing off as our bottle of bubbly is now empty. See you for the next episode. And in the meantime, pop a cork and read. read.